Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Jake, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you, Randy? I'm doing great. Having a really fun time doing the podcast so far. And I uh, realize that folks may not realize that they can actually find us on iTunes and Skitcher. Is that the one? Stitcher, yeah. yeah. Stitcher, not Skitcher, Stitcher. So, hey, whatever podcast app you're using, you can subscribe through those channels. And also, if you like what you're hearing, please comment because then that spreads the word of shooting the Frisbees to other Frisbee or non-Frisbee folk out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The way iTunes works is the more reviews we get, the more people they will show our podcast to. So let's all go leave a review and uh, spread the word. Yeah. So we're going to continue our conversation today with Donnie Rhodes and Alan Elliott. And Donnie's going to kick it off by giving us his thoughts about indoor play and outdoor play. So here we go. Indoor frisbee and outdoor frisbee are two different things. And I've been doing frisbee shows where the conditions were so bad. It was so windy that you couldn't, I couldn't get the frisbee 10 feet to my partner (laughs) and we couldn't do anything. So that's what I mean. See, you go to competitions and people want to see what the best player is. So I, I call it, you've got survive mode and you got thrive mode. So outdoors, you end up getting in survive mode way more than thrive mode. Indoors, you can get into thrive mode and really see who is the best player. Outdoors, I love playing outdoors. I, I'd much rather play on the beach, be on a sunny grass, but in, in like being able to show your skills that everybody has the same playing conditions to see the best player I think indoors gives you that opportunity way better than outdoors. Mitigates your risk for sure. You know what you're going to get. If you get good conditions outdoors, it can be great. But if you don't, it can be horrible. The thing is, I, I, I miss, some of the things I miss about playing Frisbee is that that hovering when the wind is is holding the Frisbee up. The Santa Barbara play, the the seaside beach play, the, you know, that that that's magical that that you know very seldom do i ever go oh i wish i could still play frisbee you know when i think about the wind lifting the frisbee and it just sitting there in the in the wind that those 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 are the times that that i'm like i love that that's great but again too i was a quintessential indoor player even before i moved to venice i played in the basement of mcgonagall hall in uh at Temple University, four hours a day on the wrestling mats. Jamming and competing are just, they're just different beasts, and it's really hard to combine the two. So if you're competing, it's really hard to bring that seaside energy that it's a different experience. Jamming and competing are just different. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think as far as uh, as the judging system goes, the, the, the reason that the FBA, FPA system came about was biggest people driving that it was probably me and Joey um, because we wanted to get a way to make people be more consecutive. We wanted to get a way to make people do things that were real moves and take the draws away. And, and, you know, and, and that was what the system, why it became the way it was back then, because we were trying to th- think of some way to make it more objective um, but the truth of the matter is freestyle is 
by it, its definition, <laughs> very subjective. So I, I like what we were trying to do because we were trying to create a better product. We, we, a lot of the passion that we had back then that is often mistaken for, um, for aggression, the passion that we had was for what we saw as potential. And, and we were trying to, to force the sport in that direction, which we did. Um, for years, I mean, consecutiveness and combinations were, were what really mattered. Um, at some point, that changed, but um, uh, that's what we were trying to do because there were people, you know, spinning around and, and doing nothing with the disc, and we didn't like that. <laughs> here's, here's the problem. When you, try, when you try to specify a score that precisely, as a judge, unless I, unless I understand, like back then you're talking about consecu- consecutiveness, if I don't understand consecutiveness, I'm not going to award that in the judging. You know, what I used to always say was a bad judge can screw up any system and a good judge can judge under any system. It's really about how good are your judges. If they truly understand where all the difficulty is, then you're fine with rank voting. It doesn't matter. But if they don't understand that and, you know, if they don't understand that, oh, there's difficulty in doing A, B, and C, and there's, you know, doing these other things is hard, is hard also. If I'm not rewarding for that, I can't quantify it. There's no way. So it's really about how good are your judges. And if, if your judges are educated, it doesn't, I will argue that it doesn't matter what the system is. I, I know that's a, you know, not a popular opinion. It's really about. Well, no, I, I, I agree with you, Alan. I, 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 I agree with you. The reason that we were doing it back in the day was we were trying to force the sport in one direction that we thought that's what it would do. Um, and it did right. do that for a while, but eventually people just gave up on it. And there's a reason that people did, stopped playing the way that we wanted the sport to go because it's hard. <laughs> it's a very disciplined style of play. And, and, you know, when you look at, uh, Frisbee, it's, it's discipline and rigor are not the things that attract people to the sport. It's fun. It's, it's more fun to play with less rules. And I think that, that the system that we had back then made it less fun for people to play. The, 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 the judging system is, is not necessarily a good thing. But, but again, uh, you're right. If, if, if the judge knows what he's looking at, he can look at two routines and say, that's better. There's things that can't be quantified. There's just, I mean, if you look at the best players over history, Corey Basso, Rick Castilla, Don, Joey, Chip, they just moved really well. I can be doing the same thing. I don't look like that. There's there's certain players. I mean, Randy, you're 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 a showman. You 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 put on a show. It's hard to quantify that. But if I sit here watch it, go, okay, that's good. That's better than that. That's easier for me. You know. But if you try to score it down to the nth degree, you'll never do it. And you, we would come up with these FPA scores, and it'd be like, okay, my score says this, but but watching it, that's not what I feel. And right, so, right. I, ultimately, it's it's whatever you feel. The second tournament I ever played. I played with a guy, a local player here in Houston. We went to, to Boulder, and we lost to a teenage kid playing by himself. I think you may know who that is, Randy. Yeah. <laughs> and the crowd, it was because you were a showman. You played to the crowd. It wasn't about the X's and O's. There, you know, if, if there had been FPA scoring, we probably would have beat you. The, the thing, that's the thing about the judging. The more you try to quantify it, the more ambiguous it gets. So I'm yeah. curious what the system was like back in the beginning. Has it? But maybe you can describe it a little bit. What was it like in the beginning? The beginning of, of what? Of, of the, the FPA. Let's start with the FPA. It was it was just pretty much three categories. 
scores one to ten. Uh, the only difference was what was it, Don? We had to you had to, the judges all had to be within a point. So I couldn't I you know like let's say let's say Randy, Jake, and I are the three artistic impression scores, and you two give them a five. I can't give them anything over a six or below a four. That was the only restriction. Was that only on the AI category or for all? Oh, that, that was everything. Everything. Okay. And it was the same categories we have today, AI, difficulty, Correct. and execution. We realized that execution outweighed everything because on a scale of 1 to 10, people were getting a 9, but the average difficulty score was a 2. When you added up the three scores, you had a difficulty score, an execution score that was three times what a difficulty score was. So what, and, and I, I remember I came up with the idea, I called it at the time the Santa Cruz constant, where you took the highest difficulty score, made it equivalent to the highest execution score so that everything would be the same. Do they do that now? They, now they use a multiplier, so difficulty, I think it's a 1.5 multiplier. When we were judging, if you did a the in the middle of a combination, the score started over. If it wasn't a consecutive move, it didn't count. Yeah, I mean, we were sitting there putting one, 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 one on difficulty scores. It, it, today we do difficulty based on time blocks. So back then it was a it was phrase based well, difficulty. Yeah, right, only right. on the consecutive portions, and that was me and Joey's doing. I mean, that's what we wanted people to do. We wanted to force people to do harder stuff. And not stop and hold it in front of your face and think about what you were going to do next. The system we had back then would just obliterate the style of play that is played today. Because it was, it was designed to prevent the way play, people play today. Well, I think that's and, the biggest change that probably happened. So the 15-second 15 15 block changed. That's the only big change that's really happened from where it began and where it is now. The other thing is... Back then, AI was really a combination of artistic impression and variety. There was an emphasis on variety. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's right. We, we'd write down what catches they did, right? Back then, our rule was you didn't repeat catches unless it was done for artistic, artistic purposes, whatever that meant. You couldn't repeat catches. And that, yeah. all that variety was baked into uh, artistic impression. You had, you had to work both spins. You got points for that. Um, Man, there was like what six mandatory things you had to do both spins you had to do i did i think you had to do an against the spin move larry used to do all his, his mandatories in his first combination i never knew there were mandatories in the system ever. Yeah. That's yeah you know it's interesting they actually tried to bring variety back into the ai fold uh recently and again it sort of encourages to go down that rabbit hole of like okay it, the more you try to define it the more ambiguous it gets i think it was well, challenging I, to judge there were so many because we had a big, we had a checklist system, and you were supposed to check the box for every different move that somebody did. But you also had to worry about the other four categories that were a part of AI. So it was very difficult to track that many things right. for one job. That's true. Can just keep in mind an overall variety. There's great things happening in routines now. Way too many guidances. Way too many scarecrows. I mean, I, there's four to five guidances and four to five scarecrows in every routine. That's easy to see. You, you don't even have to quantify that. You can just your first impression is like, well, I've seen that catch that many times. I think it's like figure skating and gymnastics. I believe you only get credit the first time you perform a skill. After the second time, you receive no credit for it. Well, so I have to ask you, Donnie, so why, why did you stop playing? Um, you got to realize that, that 
I, I was I was a a a, a poor backwoods country bumpkin who found this incredible thing that changed my life. I never really did anything or or had anything in my life that didn't come as a direct result of Frisbee. I traveled around the world. I made a ridiculous amount of money. I I, I, I got to hobnob with, with the elites. I, I did all kinds of incredible things, all as a result of this Frisbee thing. When uh, in 1991, we did a... a a circus in Mexico, a touring circus. And, uh, I had, I aggravated my knee pretty bad and I had to take some time off. And, uh, in, uh, in the process of taking the time off, I, my relationship with Camilla got really ugly because I think the thing that kept us together was, was the Frisbee because we had a, a mutual passion for it. And when we broke up, I just walked away from Frisbee completely. I just, I just said, I, I can't, I can't face it. I thought I was going to take a year off and I just never touched it again. Man, if you'd only had an ex partner in Texas, you could have gone back to play with. Damn. <laughs> well, you got to realize it. My marriage breaking up was, was, was catastrophic to me. I mean, it, it, it was, it was, it was the only thing I knew for 10 years. So, um, I was I was suicidal. I mean, I was I was in bad shape for wow. for, for a good couple of years. I, there was a lot of guilt on my part of giving up on on the marriage, and I related the frisbee thing to her, and so it was it was just you know your typical relationship drama bullshit that kind of got the best of me. Who do you think is a forgotten player? One of the best players uh, people don't remember these days, and what do you think made them so good? My two off the top of my head, and everybody knows the names, but I don't think everybody knows how good they were, was Cray Van Sickle. Cray kind of had stopped competing when all the FPA came around. But, I mean, he was awesome. I mean, he's – I didn't even know Cray that well. I mean, he, he's, he's been playing since he was like six. So he had the speed flow throws. He invented all the catches. And he was just – then he got into gymnastics and dance, and he was just incredible. You know, I think people think of him as, a, as one of the early pioneers – but I don't think they realized how good he was just because he didn't compete. And then the other one is uh, Castilla. They know him from the Radicals, but Rick was really, really good, and Rick could play any style, and he was super versatile. And then there was other guys. There was like Peter Rosen would have been great if he hadn't been killed. I mean, he was on his way. He had, he had gotten so good. Pete, Pete was great. I Pete, loved Pete, Pete had gone and moved out to California to play with Joey, and when you saw him, he's like Don was. You saw him a year later, and it's like, whoa. This kid's good. I mean, he had the flexibility, he had style, he had all the difficulty, he had the win game. I mean, he, he was going to be the next big thing. Yeah, absolutely, Pete. I forgot about Pete. Cray Van Sickle was a huge inspiration to me. My, my, my biggest inspiration to play Frisbee was probably, I think I saw like an Air Aces 3 demo or something. You know, I can't even remember who it was or when it was. It was probably in 77. Players that, that really I tried to emulate the most were Cray and Evan David. Oh, Evan, yeah. Evan. Evan was, Corey and Evan had won the Rose Bowl the year, the first year that I competed. The the stuff that they did, they were the first people that, that I saw their their musicality. You know, I often tell people the thing that I liked the most about Frisbee was when I started dancing that I could uh, that I could dance with a Frisbee. Well, Corey and Evan did that with a with a different skill set from the uh, 
from the technical part point of view than what we we later did but they were the people who really you know introduced that lyrical style that they had i mean there was a rhythm uh yeah. to what they did and they they were they were awesome i was lucky enough to play with Corey in 1980 uh, at the world championships, but I never got to play with Cray or Evan. And the funny thing is, I think both of those guys, they're, they're like my favorite, you know, players to watch. Who, who did they play with? I think, was it Jeff Felberbaum? First time I saw you at Don, you, you and Joey and Evan actually won three way in Boulder in a, in a 80. Oh, so I did get to play with Evan. Good. Yeah. Evan could do some weird spins in like skater position. He did Arvon with a spin in the middle, which was just the freakiest thing I've ever saw. Yeah, he was. Uh, he 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 definitely was. I, I liked Evan. Uh, Corey and Evan together had just a great energy. They they you know they they were they were awesome. Wasn't it Evan? Wasn't it Evan and Skippy who did the routine in Sonoma, where they played the first half of the routine? They played with clock and they moved in a circle in a clockwise direction. Then the second half they played with with counter and they moved in the other direction. I think that was them. <laughs> that, that's that's classic. <laughs> And you stripped a Tanya Tucker. Remember that one? I stripped anything. <laughs> oh, my. Alan, what is your favorite trick? Uh, well, define trick for me. Single okay. move or combination? It's up to you, whatever, you've, whatever you like to watch the most or, or perform the most. My, it's really my, up to you. My all-time, my all-time favorite move that anybody did in competition is Deaton's double, double leg over behind the back hole. That's the yeah. coolest move, and he never missed it. I could I could only do it about fifty percent of the time because I delayed right hand behind the back, palm down. But when I saw Deaton do that, it was like, oh wow! I can't believe we never thought of that. And that's the coolest move. Good answer. It's an amazing move. It's so freaking hard. I don't know if I've seen anybody do it in person ever. I saw Deaton do it in Houston, and next time I saw Donnie, I go, "Hey, Deaton's doing this," and he goes, "Oh, okay, that's pretty cool." I say, "Can you do it?" And he goes, "I don't know." He goes, "Throw me spin." I throw him spin. He does it first try. Flips the disc back to me and goes, yeah, I can do it. Never saw him try it again. That's awesome. So, Donnie, what's your favorite move? Uh, there's a couple of them. And, and Alan, you, you remember this one. You know the Oliver Twist position? Yep. Okay. I would take my left hand and put it in an Oliver Twist position on my right leg with my, with my head down and my leg above my head. First of all, when I did my Oliver Twist, they were straight vertical up. Um, there's a great video of me and uh, Chris Ryan and Daryl Allen from Victoria, and I do one in there. It's like up in a, it's like in a flared position, but it's an Oliver Twist, which I never did because Allen did a great one. So I never did one in the routine because we didn't repeat catches back then. Yeah, I, I loved that catch because it was just such a like inconceivable thing to do. Probably one of my favorite catches that I've ever done though. I would set the disc up with my right hand, do a jumping turn, throwing my left leg over the, over the disc, keep spinning in the air and catch it behind my knees as I landed with my left hand. So it'd be spinning to my left in the air, left leg would go over the disc and I'd catch it with my left hand behind the knees. 1991, I actually was catching it with a flawed with my right hand. So my left leg would go over the disc, and then I'd catch it, catch the flawed with my right hand as I kept spinning. That was probably one of my favorite catches I ever did. Deaton was a lot better than people 
uh, you know, people think of the best players ever. Deaton's up there. Schmall was up there, too. We used to call it the ape factor. You take somebody like Chip and Jim Schmall, what they could do, or Pete Rosen had the perfect body, too. There's this guy, Jake, up in uh, Portland. He's, he's got a pretty good body for freestyle, too. Thank you. <laughs> Helps to be tall. <laughs> how, how tall are you, Jake? I'm 6'5", and uh, yeah, I think I have disproportionately long legs and long arms for my torso. Yeah, we, we called it the ape factor. And uh, what was that, that move, that the monster that, that Chip did? I, I could never do that move. I, I never did a monster. But Chip could just, I mean, he could just grab his leg. I played random pairs with him and Jane Englehart, and I did the monster, I did the monster hole to the turnover, and Chip was going to catch the monster. And I missed the set by like six inches, and Chip just kind of grabbed his leg and yanked it, and just like oh, and he just caught it, and just he just bends the way he needs to. Speaking of bends the way they need to, the ultimate abuse your body to make the catch person in all of history, Crazy John Brooks. I've seen him catch a bad attitude <laughs> two inches off the ground, <laughs> and he used to do a monster catch, and I don't know how he didn't break his elbow. Uh, the, the, he used to just jerk his body around. There's, I've seen videos of them doing demos where there's no possible way he's going to make the catch, but he makes it because he just jerks his body. He was, uh, he was indestructible. He was a great showman too. He was, he was fun to work with. I did a lot of Bud Light stuff with him, me and Camilla and, and Crazy. Our big thing with Crazy John was we liked to compete if, with him and I, who could make the longest uh, basket. Um, and crazy actually did, uh, we did a show, uh, uh, that's incredible show with him where he, he shot baskets and, uh, I think he makes it on the second shot, but he doesn't use the normal upside down sidearm. He throws it with a regular backhand from probably 90 feet away. And, uh, I think they had to, had to make him do it again because he did it so quick. And so right away on like the first or second throw that they didn't have it on film and they had to make him do it again. <laughs> he was a, he was a phenomenal basket shooter. You know, same thing with Larry. When you look at the people who have influenced the sport more than anybody, I have to say Larry and Puriel changed the sport. I mean, he yeah. changed the game. Um, Corey was like the first person to be like, you know, the bashing. But Larry took it to a new level. I mean, uh, how many moves are named after him? The Larab's kick, the Larab's roll. I mean, he changed the sport single-handedly. He, he changed everything. Oh, hey, did you guys pay attention to the debate about shoes? Yeah. Yes, that was, that was great. I, I love that. That was very that was very interesting. My favorite shoes and and after the uh, after the eighty one Rose Bowl, I was wearing pretty much ballet slippers to play all the time. And uh, ballet slippers are when I was playing indoors, especially I wore ball, ballet slippers all the time um, because I was just able to articulate my feet better. I liked it, but. Uh, I used to have to tape them on because when you fr do freestyle, you shoot, you you do lateral movement that you don't do a lot in ballet, so they, they would come off. So I and I was looking at a picture that Jeff Felbebaum had where I'm jumping and he's throwing the disc under my leg. I'm wearing ballet slippers and they're taped on. I forgot all about that. 
but the best the best frisbee shoot ever was Camilla and I performed. She wore Capizio uh, one and a half inch heels. Yeah, I was actually amazed at, at uh, how how many people commented on that shoe thread. Actually, it's <laughs> like, wow, everybody has a strong opinion about their shoe choice, and yeah. including me. I mean, I wear Stan Smiths, and I always have, and they quit making them. And I was like, oh my god, I got, I, I don't know what to do. And I tried other shoes, it didn't work. Then they started making the Stan Smiths again. In fact, they've become quite popular. I bought like eight pair, and I'm never going to be without them again. Jake, what was your favorite shoe? Well, did so you I, chime in? Yeah, I did. I wear uh, Reebok Classic walking shoes. Same shoes that Murph wears. For you know, There's two things. I think they are perfectly formed to the size of my foot, so they're extremely comfortable. But the, I just love the leather tops. When I kick the disc, it grabs the disc, and I can add tons of spin. When we were doing uh, our, our shows in the, in the early uh, 90s, um, we went with a more athletic shoe. Uh, we wore what was called a Reebok Freestyle High. It was made for aerobics. Those were nice. Well, this is the epitome of one of the reasons why we we got we started this podcast and named it Shooting the Frisbees because we can sit and talk about frisbee shit for hours and hours and hours, and we're all just freak shows. And so we need to have an outlet for this. So I'm really glad that you guys joined us to do this. Because um, you get it. I want to. I want to say thanks for letting us uh, talk. And like I said, it's always good to talk to uh, to uh, to Alan. He's a uh, he's a wealth of information. But I never get to talk to you guys anymore. And it's it's uh, you know I I think that when it comes to uh, people who have been good for the sport, um, you're two of them also, and uh, you're doing good work and and keep it up. I, I you're one of my Randy. You're one of my all time favorite players to watch. Yeah, Jake is uh, Jake is, is is amazing as well. Well, it's this has been great. Um, really great to hear some of the past and the history. And thanks, you guys. Yes, thank you guys so much for letting us interview. That was such a wonderful conversation. Um, really enjoyed talking to both of you, um, Randy. What was your favorite part of that conversation? Well, you know, the part where he said uh, he really enjoyed watching me. I was uh, one of his all-time favorites. So, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's definitely my favorite part, too. <laughs> oh. Well, that was, yeah, no, that was awesome. And, uh, of course, if folks want to get more information, go to frisbeeguru.com and sign up for our newsletter. The sign-up is in the right-hand corner of the website. And, of course, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and you want to support us, feel free to donate. Yep. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check out our website at frisbeeguru.com.